Well, if you Google the 100 most inspiring movies of all time, you'll see the number 54 on the list is Rudy. Now, how many of you ever seen Rudy? Okay, you know the story about a young boy who grows up in Joliet, Illinois, wanting to play football for Notre Dame. And he, he plays football in high school, but when he graduates, he realizes he isn't big enough to play college ball, and besides, his grades aren't that great. He can't get into Notre Dame. Uh, so he goes to work in a local steel mill. But when his buddy is killed in a steel mill, steel mill explosion, Rudy decides it's time to return to pursuing his dream. So he goes to school, goes to community college, hires a tutor so he could bring his grades up, and after two years of community college, he applies to Notre Dame. Three times, three times he's rejected. The fourth time's the charm. He finally gets in, and once in to Notre Dame, he uh, tries out for the football team, the Fighting Irish, and he doesn't make the cut. But the coach makes him one of the practice squad, and the job of the practice squad is to scrimmage with the regular players. You don't get a jersey, you're not part of the team, uh, but you get to do a little, uh, a little playing in practice. Well, it comes to the end of Rudy's senior year, and the team has come to love this guy. So much so, final game, several of the players walk into the coach's office ahead of time, put their jerseys on his desk and say, let Rudy wear my jersey. Let him play in my place today. Well, the coach relents and he says, okay, I'll give Rudy a, a jersey. I'll let Rudy sit on the bench, but he's not going to play. So it comes to the end of the game, final minutes of the game, and the entire stadium in South Bend, Indiana, begins to cheer, Rudy, 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 Rudy. And the, the coach can do nothing but put him in the game. So he puts him in a defense. In the last play of the game, Rudy sacks the opposing team's quarterback, and the fans go wild, and the team carries him off on their shoulders off the field. Now, friends, this is a beautiful picture of somebody who is passionate about getting in the game. Somebody who desperately wants to be used. Use me, coach. And today, this is what we're going to talk about. This is going to be our focus. How to get in the biggest game of all. How to be used in a big way by God Almighty. Have you ever experienced that, being used by God? Is that the current experience of your life? You have this sense that God is using you. Maybe you're thinking this is way too grandiose, you know, this concept used by God, like I'm a middle schooler, <laughs> or I'm, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm a school teacher, I'm a CPA, I'm a landscaper, I'm a, used by God? Yes, used by God. I want you to carry that concept in your mind today. We're in the second week of a five-part Bible-savvy series. Okay, we're looking at the Old Testament book of Joshua. Now, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that we provide our congregation with a daily Bible reading schedule. We encourage all of you to read the Bible on a daily basis. It'll change your life. And several times a year, we dip into whatever part of the Bible the schedule has taken us to. So for the next five weeks, because the schedule is in Joshua, we're going to be looking at some passages in Joshua that you've read, hopefully, the previous week. So today, we're going to take a look at five excuse me, six characteristics of the person God uses. Now, if you haven't taken your outline from your program yet, I encourage you to do that and jot each of these six characteristics down. 
Where did I get the six characteristics? Well, uh, our schedule has taken us up through the 10th chapter of Joshua, and in those opening 10 chapters, there are at least six amazing stories, some of the most exciting stories you'll find in the Bible. And so I'm going to draw a single characteristic from each story. It's a characteristic of the kind of person God uses. And as I do so, I want you to ask yourself the question, does this characteristic describe me? Okay, is, is this the kind of person I am? Am I the kind of person that God will use? So here's characteristic number one, converted. Write that down in your outline if you're using your Bible app, uh, Christ Community Church app, app, jot that down. The year is 1400 B.C. Okay, Israel has been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They're now about to enter the promised land, delivered from slavery, about to enter the promised land. So called because God had promised it to their ancestor Abraham 600 years earlier. Now last weekend I did a lot of covering of the context, the historical background of this book. If you missed last weekend, please go online and listen to that so you'll understand what you're reading. It was also a vision casting, an annual vision casting sermon where we laid out, this is where God's taking Christ Community Church this next year. So we want you on board with us. If you missed that, please, please listen to it. Now, we're going to begin our study today with Israel perched on the edge of the Jordan River, about to cross into the Promised Land, where chapter 2, verse 1, follow along as I read. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. That is an unfortunate name for a town. Okay, I'm just saying, all right? Wouldn't want to put it on the return address in my envelope, you know? Joshua says to these spies, go over, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. And you're going to see just how practical how helpful God's word is today. So the Israelites are about to cross into the promised land, and the first enemy city they're going to encounter is this thickly walled fortress called Jericho. All right, so Joshua sends a couple of spies in ahead of time to check things out, get the lay of the land, find out what the vulnerabilities, weaknesses, and the defenses of the city might be. Now, verse 1 tells us he sent them secretly, <laughs> but as you read on in the story, they weren't very secretive because uh, somebody tells the king, hey, by the way, uh, some Israelite spies have come to check us out. So these covert operators had not been so covert. They'd been a bit clumsy. And so they make their way, the two spies make their way to the home. I'm just going to sum up the story here. They make their way to the home of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, this is not a case of mixing business with pleasure, okay? This is a, this is a cover for them. They, 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 they hope to sort of lose themselves in the general population, just a couple of bad boys in Jericho doing what bad boys do. And word gets to the king, as I mentioned a moment ago, that there are two spies and they're staying at Rahab's place. And he sends messengers who say, bring out the spies. Now, Rahab has hidden the two spies under stalks of flax on her rooftop patio. And so she says to the king's messengers, uh, what spies? Oh, oh, yeah, there were some suspicious guys who came here earlier in the day, but they left long ago. In fact, I think I saw them leaving by the city gate. If you guys hurry up, you might be able to catch them. 
And so they book it, the king's messengers book it out of there, and the spies come out. And this is not the main point of the story. The main point is what happens next, the conversation between Rahab and these spies. She says to them, listen, guys, I've heard about what your God has done. In fact, all of Jericho is ringing with the news. You know, we've heard about Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God. When you see capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, that's a transliteration of Yahweh. We've heard about what Yahweh has done, how he delivered you from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, how he split the Red Sea and you crossed on dry land. We've heard about how God has devastated every enemy army that's come against you. So evidently, Rahab and fellow Jerichoites, they've been watching CNN news on God's intervention on Israel's behalf. Look at what she says in verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now listen. For the Lord your God, Yahweh, Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth below. Your God is the real God, she says. Now friends, Rahab has just gone through an amazing conversion. With this statement, she turns her back on the gods she's grown up with, and she begins professing Israel's God as the Lord of heaven and earth. Wow. And this conversion, this mega change of allegiance, is why God was able to use Rahab in a big way, why God put Rahab into the game, so to speak. And you, you'll, you'll see as the story unfolds, Israel ends up winning a major victory thanks to Rahab's help over Jericho. And what's more, 1,400 years later, in Matthew chapter 1, when Jesus shows up on the planet and his genealogy is listed for us in Matthew 1, guess whose name is in the middle of the genealogy? Rahab the, the prostitute. And you read further in the New Testament, the epistle of Hebrews says that she was actually one of the heroes of the faith. As, as the writer of Hebrews describes a bunch of people who are well known as faith heroes, Rahab's name is right in the middle of the group. Greatly used of God. And why? Because of her change of allegiance, because of her conversion, because God has now become her God. So you want to be used by God. Well, you got to be converted. Now, usually we think when we hear conversion, we think of that point in time when a person surrenders their life to Jesus Christ. And maybe you've done that. Okay, conversion is when you wake up to the reality that you're a sinner and your sin has distanced you from a holy God. You've alienated him. But the good news is that this holy God is a loving God who sent his one and only son, his eternal son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross. He took the hit. He took the penalty. He took the judgment our sins deserve. And risen from the grave, Jesus is now able to offer forgiveness and new life to all who surrender their lives to him. And maybe you've done that. Have you done it? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Okay, this is where conversion begins. However, it's not the whole story. Conversion also includes, listen, it also includes denouncing the false gods in your life and turning to the worship and the pursuit of the one true living God and his son, Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean by false gods? 
You know, I, I mean, what, what, whatever gets your primary attention, whatever gets your primary time, whatever gets your financial resources, whatever you're most enthused about in life, that's probably your false god. You know, your false god may include your job, it may be your favorite sports team, it may be a boyfriend or a girlfriend, it could be shopping, it could be grandkids, it could be working out, it could be video games, anything your life revolves around that you're looking to to make your, you, you, you happy, to fill the gaps in your life, that's your, you know, that's your false god. Here's a litmus test to consider. Okay, what? When you skip worship on a weekend, what is it that bumps God from the schedule? Okay, when you don't show up to worship God, what is it that's taken his place on that occasion? Is it a Bears game? Is it work you brought home from the office? Is it shopping? Is it a family function? Is it golf? Because that's a giveaway. Whatever pushes God away from the first place in our lives. Priority number one, that's a false God. And only when we're truly converted, only when God gets top billing in our lives, only when there's a mega change of allegiance does God begin to use us, really use us. You know, he doesn't put people into the game whose hearts are half committed to him. Yeah, this, this past summer, I was reading a biography of Ty Cobb when I got the news that my mother-in-law had passed away in a nursing home in Ohio. Now the reason I remember what I was reading at the time is because it just struck me the contrast between these two lives, Ty Cobb and Christina McCune, my mother-in-law. Now Ty Cobb, if you don't know, Ty Cobb was one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Uh, he holds the record for lifetime batting average, 366. It will, it will never be beaten. Okay, he was a ferocious base runner. In one game, he hit a single, got on first base. On the next pitch, he stole second base. On the next pitch, he stole third base. On the next pitch, he stole home plate. True story. This guy was just amazing. When the Baseball Hall of Fame opened, Ty Cobb was the first person inducted. Got more votes than Babe Ruth, and you heard of Babe Ruth. Baseball was his god. It was his one-trick pony, if you would. It's what his life was all about. And it wasn't a happy life outside of baseball. Several failed marriages, dysfunctional kids, constant battle with alcohol. As he grew older and his fame faded, he became embittered by that. You know, by way of contrast, I'm reading this biography of his, and I go to the funeral of my mother-in-law, and I hear from people who say, you know, I came to know God when I was a child in one of your mother-in-law's backyard Bible clubs. And I run into people who, when they were out of work, mom brought groceries by their house. I run into people who lived under her roof for a while because they had no place else to go. See, Ty Cobb was famous, but Mom McCune was used by God. And the reason she was used by God is she had been converted. God was her number one priority. So you want to get in the game. You want to be used by God. Get rid of your false gods. Make God your number one priority. Number two, the person used by God is attentive, attentive. We're moving ahead now, looking at chapters three and four of Joshua. They tell another story. This is the account of God's people taking their first steps into the promised land. 
Now, there's a, pro- a problem here because in order to get into the promised land, you've got to cross the Jordan River east to west. And the Jordan River at this point in time was at flood stage. There were no bridges over the Jordan River. There was no boat to ferry you across. This was a huge problem. So God gives Joshua a plan. Joshua gives the plan to his leaders, and the leaders pass it on to the people. Let me read it to you in Joshua chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. The leaders say to the people, after three days, the, the officers went through the camp giving orders to the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant... When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. So very simply, what are the instructions? The the instructions are keep your eye on the Ark of the Covenant. Follow the Ark. Wherever it goes, you go. Now, the Ark was a sacred, gold-plated box that, that, that was carried by priests on long poles, and it represented the presence of God because inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two stone tablets on which God had engraved the Ten Commandments, His holy word. So the Ark represented God's word, and the people were instructed to keep their eye on the Ark. Now, as I've taught you before how to read the Bible, you know, one of the, one of the things you look for, you make several observations as you're reading if you want to get something out of the Bible for your, your life, and one of the observations is to look for repeating words or ideas. If the same concept keeps popping up repeatedly in the same passage, you know God's trying to get your attention. Well, in chapters 3 and 4 of Joshua, the Ark of the Covenant pops up 16 times. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. Keep your eye on the Ark. Follow the Ark. So where does the Ark take them? Well, the priests who are carrying the ark march right into the raging waters of the Jordan River. Drop down to verse 11 of chapter 3. See the ark of the covenant. Okay, keep your eyes on the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. It will go into the Jordan ahead of you. And that's exactly what happened. The priests are carrying the ark, and they march into the Jordan River. And the minute their, their sandals hit the water... God stops the Jordan River upstream, and there is a clear, dry path for Israel to cross. Now, if this story sounds at all familiar, it's because God had done a similar miracle 40 years earlier as he was delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. Remember that that part of the story? You saw either the Charlton Heston or the, the Russell Crowell version of this, okay? Egypt is coming to get the people, bring them back, and they're facing the Red Sea and nowhere to go, and Moses stretches his rod over the the sea, and the sea parts, and the people cross on dry land. Same thing happens again in this story. So what's the lesson? What is the lesson? What kind of people does God use? Well, it's people who keep their eye on the ark. It's people who follow God's word. People who who are careful to spend time in the Scripture. A few years back, a guy named Henry Blackaby wrote a a best-selling book called Experiencing God. I I read a lot of books, and I forget what most of them have to say, but I will never forget the basic premise of Henry Blackaby's book. It, It goes like this. He says, you know, most of us go through life, listen, most of us go through life asking God to bless what we're doing. It's almost as if we're asking God to keep his eye on us, you know, follow us. Say, what we do, God, come behind and bless, okay? 
Blackaby says, if you want to experience God in your life, if you want to get in the game, you've got to turn it around. You've got to read God's word and find out what God is up to, what he wants you to do, and then you follow that. Instead of asking God to bless your thing, you find out what God's thing is, and you do it. See, this is why we encourage you to pick up a Bible-savvy schedule and follow along and pick up a Bible-savvy journal and jot your insights down as you read the Bible on a daily basis. You know, that Bible-savvy journal, by the way, we've designed it with a lot of instructions so it will help you get the most out of your daily reading of God's Word. So use it on your own. Use it with your family. Use it in your community group. Use it with your buds. The, the, the person that God uses is attentive. They keep their eye on the word. What does God want? Here, here's a third characteristic. What kind of person does God use? What kind of person gets in God's game? A person who's obedient. We're going to move on now to Joshua 5 and 6. And these two chapters contain the most famous story in the book of Joshua. In fact, one of the most famous stories in the entire book. Bible, it's the Battle of Jericho. And this story illustrates the importance of obedience. If you want to be used by God, God uses obedient people. So obedience pops up repeatedly in these two chapters. Now, I want to begin by taking you to chapter 5, verse 2. Okay, in my Bible, there's a heading above verse 2 in chapter 5. And, and this is another Bible study hint I've given you in the past. Whenever you're reading a passage of Scripture, pay attention to the headings because the headings will tell you the theme of the passage you're about to read. So look for repeating words or ideas, but also look for themes. Now, in my Bible, at chapter 5, verse 2, the heading is this, Circumcision and Passover at Gilgal. You see that? Same thing in your Bible? Circumcision and Passover at at Gilgal. So here's the deal. Okay, they're about to attack Jericho, this heavily fortressed city. God says, you, you want my help? You want me to have your back? Okay, here's the people. I, I use people who are obedient to me. Unfortunately, there are two major ways, Israel, in which you've not been obedient. And so if you expect me to show up, I'm not going to show up until you start doing what I've asked you to do. Like what? Circumcision and Passover. Okay, circumcision is a little baby boy, eight years, eight days old, rather, Jewish boy is circumcised. It's a sign of the fact that he belongs to the family of God, that his, his family belongs to God. But just before entering the promised land, the previous 40 years, Israel's been wandering around the desert. If you wonder why they were wandering around the desert, listen to last week's sermon, Okay. And for 40 years in the desert, they've not been circumcising their little boys. And some of them are now 25-year-old guys, 38-year-old guys, and so on. And God says, I'm not going to back you up unless you do it. This is what I've asked you to do. Do it. And so every male in Israel at the time, thousands of guys get circumcised. Ouch. And it all happens at a place, read the scripture, it happens at a place called Gibeoth. And if you look at your footnote, Gibeoth means in Hebrew, hill of foreskins. Don't even try to imagine it. Okay. Do, I've asked you to obey me, obey me. The other thing God says is in about Passover, 
Okay, I gave you Passover as a celebration to commemorate your deliverance from Egypt. But for 40 years in the desert, you've not been observing Passover. Do it! And so they do. They throw a Passover celebration. But by the way, circumcision and Passover have counterparts in the life of a Christ follower today. What are they? Okay, if circumcision is what marked you as belonging to God's family in Old Testament times, what is it that marks you as a Christ follower today? When you've surrendered your life to Jesus, how, how do you identify him publicly? What do you do? Baptism, which means if you're a person who's put your trust in Christ, whether you were 14 when you did it or 44 when you did it, and you, you've never been baptized, God says, do it. You want to play in the game? You want to be used by me? me? Walk in obedience. Our next baptism celebration is the second weekend in November. Do it. The other thing, uh, Passover has a counterpart. So if Passover celebrates God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, we do something as Christ followers that that communicates our deliverance from sin, Jesus' death and resurrection uh, on our behalf. What is that that we do once a month around here? Communion. So so taking that little piece of bread and that cup, attending worship services, not missing worship services, especially on communion week when we commemorate what God has done for us. God says, do it. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So the lesson's pretty, pretty obvious. God uses people who are obedient. Well, after these folks obey God in Joshua 5 with circumcision and Passover, they're now ready to take Jericho. I won't read the entire story to you, but I want to point out how unconventional their battle plan was. You know, Joshua gets the people together and he says, okay, God's given us these instructions. Here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to march around Jericho one time today. And then for the next six days, we're going to march around for six days, one time around Jericho. And the seventh day, we're going to march around Jericho seven times. The priests are going to go in front of our armed forces, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, blowing trumpets... And after seven times around, we're all going to shout, and the walls are going to fall down. Now, you're one of Joshua's soldiers, and he tells you, this is the game plan. What are you thinking? You're wondering what what Joshua's been drinking, right? Joshua, you expect me to do this? We're not going to fight. We're not going to throw spears at the walls. We're not going to get a battering ram. Well, you know the story, they do what God tells them to do, another illustration of obedience, and they they win a great victory over Jericho. What's the lesson for us? Obedience. So when you pick up the Bible daily, you're following the Bible-savvy reading schedule, you don't set it down until you've jotted something in your journal that you're going to do. You're finding something to obey. When you get in a community group and you do your study for the week together and you discuss it, you look for something to obey. The end goal is not Bible knowledge, it's obedience. When you listen to a sermon, like you're listening to a sermon right now, what's the goal? Obedience. You walk out with something to obey. And sometimes, as you encounter the scripture, what God asks you to do seems absolutely ridiculous like marching around Jericho seven times. You know, God's word says, save sex for marriage. It's right in the book. 
God's word says, take the first 10% of every paycheck, give it back to the Lord's work. That's a minimal starting place of generosity. Give. God's word says, somebody in your life uh, abuse you? Here's what I want you to do. Forgive them, and oh, beyond forgiveness, pray for them that God will bless their lives. You read some of this stuff in the book, and you say, that's ridiculous. And God says, obey me, and I'll use you. Obedient. Here's the fourth characteristic, transparent. Uh, After God's people experience an amazing victory over Jericho, they get a little cocky when it comes to the next challenge. It's not a big city, it's a little village called Ai. And the soldiers gather around Jericho and they say, Jericho, uh, Joshua rather, and they say, Joshua, no need to send all our fighting men. Okay, there's like 600,000 fighting men in Israel at the time. And these guys say to Joshua, just send like two, 3,000 guys. We'll clean up on Ai. So he sends two, 3,000 guys. And they are totally repelled by Ai. In fact, they're on the run and the Ai soldiers are chasing them down and end up killing 36 Israeli soldiers. And when Joshua gets the news, he flips out. He drops to his face in God's presence, and he says, how could you let this happen? I mean, I thought you were going to have our back. You know, didn't you say you were going to fight for us? If this is how you fight for us, 36 guys getting killed, we might as well go back to Egypt. Totally flipped out. (laughs) And God calmly says to Joshua, get up off your face. There's a problem in the camp. And until the problem gets fixed, you're never going to win another battle. Okay, the problem is someone sinned big time, and it's been concealed, and so you need to out it so you can deal with it. And until that happens, there will be no gain. So let me give you some background here. Before the battle with, Joshua, with Jericho, God had given command, commands through Joshua that when they got into the city, when the walls tumbled, they were to destroy everything and everybody. Now, when you read through Joshua, there's a lot of violence there. You may begin to wonder, was this just genocide? Well, what's going on here? I'll tell you what's what's going on is God's judgment. The Bible says that the the people of the land at the time were, were extraordinarily wicked, and so God was bringing judgment on them, which is his prerogative, friends. In fact, from the very opening chapters of the Bible, you might remember the story of the flood where the planet had become so wicked that God decides to to save one righteous family, a guy named Noah and his wife and his kids, and everybody else is destroyed in the flood. Well, this time around, God's not going to destroy the world. He's going to destroy the people of the promised land, and it's not going to be with the flood. It's going to be with an army. So this is not jihad. This This is God's judgment. In fact, God tells his people at this time, if you ever become as wicked as the people of this land you're dispossessing, I'll destroy you in the same way. He's not playing any favorites. Well, one of the Israelite soldiers, a guy named Achan, he gets greedy after Jericho's walls collapse. He takes some stuff for himself and he hides it in his tent. His family, as you know, we kind of read between the lines of the story, are somewhat complicit in the whole thing. And so Achan's got to be outed. Joshua's got to deal with the problem. How does he out Achan? Well, Joshua calls together all the leaders of Israel's tribes, 12 tribes, and they cast lots. And Judah, the tribe of Judah, draws the short straw. 
So then all the clan leaders within the tribe of Judah cast lots, and the clan of the Zerahites is chosen. They get the short straw. And then all the Zerahite leaders get together and cast lots to find out which family gets the short straw, and the family of Zimri does. And then all of the males within the family of Zimri cast lots, and one male by the name of Achan gets the short straw. Now, we're in Joshua chapter 7, drop down to verse 21. Joshua 7, verse 21, Achan responds to being outed with these words. Achan replied, it is true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. Now, now the reason I tell you to bring your own Bible with you is I like you to mark it up as you go. So in the next verse, if you got your own Bible, circle the four verbs, okay? Achan says, when I saw, there's verb number one, when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, there's your second verb, and took them, your third verb, they are hidden, verb number four, in the ground inside my tent. So Achan says, I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. And that, that last verb, hid or hidden, is repeated in the next verse for emphasis. Because, friends, this is usually where our sins take us. We end up hiding the thing we've done wrong. We bury it. We conceal it from other people. I mean, that, that, that debt that has built up in our lives because of our unrestrained spending our addiction to alcohol or to porn, our uh, runaway temper at home, those sly little gossipy comments we make that tear down other people, our stinginess when it comes to the poor, our sins are hidden. Hardly anybody knows, but God knows. God knows people with hidden sins don't get used by God. And in Achan's case, his concealed sin was disastrous. He and his family are put to death. Now again, if this seems over the top to you, let me remind you that everything he'd taken was supposed to be destroyed. It was banned. It was, if I could put it this way, spiritually radioactive. If you touch it, you're zapped. So by taking it for himself, Achan had destroyed himself and his family. Now fortunately... Oh, my goodness, friends, fortunately, if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus, Jesus took the punishment our sins deserve. He took the judgment of God. He absorbed the radioactivity. And that's why if you've put your hope in Christ and you've been forgiven for sins, past, present, and, and future, you, you can now afford to be transparent about th those sins. You don't need to hide them. In fact, just the opposite. God says on a regular basis, daily, just confess your sins. Christ has, has taken care of them. So just, just be honest about them. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just because of what Jesus did. God is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we can neglect to do that to regularly confess our sins, but when we, we fail to confess sin on a regular basis, God sidelines us. He takes us out of the game. You know, we go on the injured reserve list because our sins injure us. And we can't be used, listen, we can't be used again until we become transparent before God. 
So are you a person who's transparent? Not perfect, just the opposite. A person who says, I'm a screw-up on a regular basis, but Christ paid for that, and as I'm transparent and confess those sins, God says, all right, let's get you back in the game. Number five, prayerful. Prayerful. And I, you know, I wanted to tell you this whole story, but I, I knew I'd run out of time to do it, so I'm just going to touch on this one. Okay, you could read the story for yourself in, in chapter 9, as Joshua and company mow down city after city, a group called Gibeonites who live nearby, they're worried that they're going to be the next ones who have Joshua and troops knocking at their city gates. So they, they do a little ruse with Joshua to fool him into thinking that they, they come from far away and Joshua needs to make a treaty with them. And Joshua, instead of seeking God's face, Joshua makes a treaty. And it's a very foolish thing for him to do. Now, another hint that I've given you how to study the Bible is when you're reading a passage, look for something striking. Look for something that jumps off the page at you. This is what jumped off the page for me as I read this story about the Gibeonite deception. And by the way, this is a really good story. You've got to read it on your own. But, but they come to fool Joshua, and Joshua falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. And this is the reason why in the middle of chapter 9, verses 14 and, and, and 15, the Israelites sampled the provisions of the Gibeonites, but they did not inquire of the Lord. And then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. These guys said, we come from far away, which is why they wore tattered clothes. I mean, it was all part of the ruse. And Joshua bought it because he did not inquire of the Lord. If you want to be used to God, you've got to make wise decisions. Wise decisions require prayer. Many of us in the room, across our four campuses, listening online right now, are facing big decisions in our lives. Will they be good decisions or bad decisions? Depends. You praying about them? You making the decisions on the basis of your own intelligence, or are you seeking God's direction. Here's number six. God uses people who are prayerful. Number five. Number six, God uses people who are dependent. So Joshua makes a binding treaty, a foolish treaty with the Gibeonites. Shortly thereafter, a bunch of enemy armies attack Gibeon, and now Joshua is obligated to defend Gibeon because he signed a treaty with them. So Joshua takes off after these enemy armies, and fortunately for Joshua, God has his back. God says, okay, you did something stupid, but I'm behind you, Joshua. Now, look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them. He took the enemy by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, so Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. This passage goes on to say that as the enemy soldiers flee, God sends a hailstorm, and big chunks of ice fall on the heads of some of these enemy soldiers and kill them. And Joshua and his troops are pursuing them because Joshua knows whoever gets away is going to end up fighting him in some future day. So Joshua is determined. He wants to make an end of it. He doesn't want there to be a future battle with these guys. So dro drop down. Joshua ends up praying this unbelievable prayer, hoping to get God's strength for the battle. Verses 12 and 13. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, now listen to this, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Aijalon.'" 
And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation, till Israel avenged itself on its enemies. You got you to picture this. Israel's pursuing their enemies. They're winning the battle. The enemy armies are on the run. Joshua's troops are already chasing them down. But he, listen, he's not content to accomplish what he can only accomplish in his own strength. He wants something bigger. He wants God to do something that only God can do. And so he cries out, God, make the sun stand still. You know, make the day longer so that the enemy can't sneak away into darkness. And the text says, and the sun stood still. In fact, in the text, if you read the story for yourself, you'll find that according to the writer of the book of Joshua, the most surprising thing about this story is not that the sun stood still. (laughs) The surprising thing is that anyone would have the nerve to ask God to make the sun stand still. That's really surprising. Huge request, not a wee little prayer. Now, what does it mean that the sun stood still? Theologians are basically in two camps on this score. Some say it literally stood still in the sense that God stopped the earth temporarily from revolving around the sun for several hours so so that those hours were added onto the day so Joshua could win a complete victory. Uh, Another group of scholars say, well, no, this is obviously a poetic metaphor here. This is a word picture. This is not a literal stopping of the sun or the earth's revolution around the sun. What it is, it's a statement that God so supernaturally empowered Joshua and his troops that they fought like they had more than a day to deal with. They got more done in that day than than would have been humanly possible. It was as if the sun had stood still. It was as if the day had actually been longer. And I say, whatever. You know, all I know is that God uses people who are dependent on him. People who are constantly calling out for his help in situations rather than relying on their own strength and what they can accomplish on their own. You know, we prize independence. The Bible prizes dependence, God dependence. Want to be used by God? It it doesn't come from flexing your muscle. It comes from flexing God's muscle. God loves to show himself strong on behalf of people who cry out to him. God, show up. So what kind of people does God use? He uses people who are converted who have not only surrendered to Christ, but they've said, I want to get rid of false gods, things that tempt me to push God out of the way, any other top priority that would take his place. I want God to be number one. He uses people who are attentive, who daily pick up his word and read it, expose themselves to his word. He uses people who are obedient, who do what the Bible says. He uses people who are transparent, who regularly fall on their faces, who fail but who keep getting back up, having confessed their sins and been forgiven, bringing things out into the light. He uses people who are prayerful. When they're making big decisions, they don't make it on their own intelligence. They say, God, what do you think I should do? He uses people who are dependent, people who want to accomplish something much bigger than they could ever do on their own. Some of you are facing that right now, and I say before you leave one of our campuses, use one of those prayer champions at the back of your zone and say, this is where I need God to show up. Would you pray with me that he would? And watch what God can do. 
Now, we're going to collect our gifts because this is one of those obedient things we do. We bring our gifts to the Lord, and we're going to sing a song. It's a new song for most of us, but a song about God's faithfulness, about God's power at work in our lives. And when we're done singing, our campus pastors will come and close in prayer.